Good morning. I hope you're well. We're doing something different today. I'm going to I'm going to launch right into this because we have a lot to do. I'm going to start with a, a bit of a story, uh, if we will, a little bit of history, my favorite subject, uh, right behind Bible, of course. Um, so, um, in the fourth century uh, BC, not uh, not AD, uh, in the fourth century BC, there was a man named Phidias. Um, he was an incredibly famous sculptor. You've seen his work, I promise you, um, at least pictures of it. Um, he is the one who carved and designed, designed and carved and uh, and led the building of the uh, the Great Parthenon in Athens. Um, one of the seven wonders of the world. This massive structure with these giant Corinthian columns, and uh, I'm sorry, those are like those are those are Doric columns, not Corinthian. My bad, architecture friends. Um, and um, there's these statues that were all around it, none of which um, remain there. Many of them we still have in uh, some of them in in different museums and stuff around the world. And in the very center of this temple, as in all temples, and we're going to talk about this later, um, in the very center of this temple was this sort of garden with this statue that was massive, and it was made of solid gold. Um, it was the statue of the great Athena uh, with a sword and a shield. Now, um, this was one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the most beautiful places that you could see in that day, um, mainly because of the statues that were in the middle of it, because statues have meaning. They have always had uh, incredible meaning. Now, this man, Phidias, um, shortly after building uh, the statue to the goddess, uh, the great statue of Athena, um, he was arrested and thrown in prison. And eventually he would be put to death for a great crime. Not a great crime in our eyes, but a great crime in the eyes of the Greek people. See, what he did was, um, hidden in the shield of Athena, he had carved the image of two men. One of them was his friend Pericles, um, one of the leaders of Athens at the time. Um, and the other image on the shield was an image of himself. Um, of Phidias. And in the ancient world, you did not mix the images of the gods with the images of humans. You didn't do that. Um, that's a capital crime. And the people were irate when they found out that he had done this. And they went and arrested him and threw him in prison, put him on trial, and eventually killed him. Because how could a human being ever be connected with the image of God? It doesn't work that way. You can make statues of people and you can make statues of the gods, but you can't put them together. Um, at all. And with that single idea, you can sort of begin to see um, why Christianity in the first century was so different than everything else around it that existed at the time. The first thing that we must do um, when we're understanding Christianity and what they were up against is understand how they viewed the image of God Okay, um, that is going to be a center sort of piece of our conversation today, because today we're talking about statues, we're talking about monuments, we live in an interesting time, 2020 is a very um, eye-opening year, it's, uh, it's what we've said, an apocalyptic year, apocalypse means unveiling, it's an unveiling, um, we are now in this huge conversation about monuments and statues and what we do with them, and um, what do they mean, do we want to tear some down, do we want to put some up, which ones do we keep, which ones do we throw away, how are we tearing them down? Um, are we as a people just deciding to do it when the, when the, uh, the leaders above us don't listen for decades? Like, what are we going to do? How do we, how do we address 
all of this? How are Christians supposed to think about this? So um, the first thing we must do in a conversation as Christians, as the people of God, about um, monuments and statues, the first thing that we should really do is to remove ourselves from the American arguments, okay? To step back. We have a different viewpoint. We have a higher place that we're looking at things from. Um, as, it, as the people of God, um, we must go back to our theological understanding of who we are and what exactly we are doing here. If we are at all to speak um, to the debates about statues all around us, okay? Um, the conversation that first needs to be had with us amongst each other um, must be about the Imago Dei. Um, this has been a favorite topic of mine, topic of mine for years, and we're going to talk about that today um, in a little bit. First, we're going to look at some ideas of statues in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about that. But I, I want to be clear: um, as I talk about statues and monuments today, I'm going to do my best to remove us from America, pretend that we are on some other planet, um, devoid of any other country but the kingdom of God, any other nation. And, and, and we are just dwelling here, having a conversation with each other from that angle, from that point of view. Because that is the correct angle, the correct point of view that we should come at these things as. Uh, from. And, and, and as we form our thoughts around that, then we can enter into the discussions with the kingdoms of, these wor of this world about their statues. Because let's be clear, these are not ours. We are Christians. These are their statues. Okay? Maybe there's some help that we can offer. Um, both sides are speaking from ideology. We can speak to ideology, okay? So uh, why don't we open up with prayer, and then I'm going to ask the question, um, what is a statue? What is a monument? Okay, let's pray. Father, be with us wherever my uh, brothers and sisters are gathering today, wherever they are watching this from, wherever they are listening from. First off, keep them safe. Keep them whole. Keep them filled up. Keep them connected to you, the source of life. Keep them connected to, uh, to their church, um, the presence of you in this world, the body of Christ to which they are a part of. I pray that uh, you would inspire us this morning, this evening, whenever it is that they are listening to this. I pray that you would uh, um, help us to understand what we are doing here. Give us a better view so that we can um, better address the, uh, the problems that are, that are happening in the communities in which we live. Um, I pray that you would help us, assist us as we work for the peace of the nations in which we have been taken into exile. Amongst them, let us be your light in this place. Amen. Okay. What is a monument? What is a statue? What purpose do they serve? Um, why do we care about them? What does the Bible say about them? Um, let's start there first. Last question first. Let's go to the Old Testament. Um, the entirety of the Old Testament, in the entirety of the whole thing, there is not a single instance of God's people building a statue of any kind that is spoken of positively. Every time God's people in the Old Testament built a statue, uh, it was condemned, it was spoken of negatively, it was a practice of idolatry. Every time. Um, the Jewish culture, all the way up until the time of Christ, all the way up until the first second century, second century, even the third century, um, they practiced the second commandment. Let me read it to you. It's Exodus 20, 
4. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth uh, beneath or in the waters below. Okay. The Jews were prohibited uh, from making sculptured images of, and the way they best interpreted this, if what we could tell is, is people, gods, and animals. Um, because even the temple had carvings of vines and, and grapes and clusters and stuff. So from what we can tell, this applied in their minds to images of God, images of us, human beings, and images of animals. Um, so they prohibited the construction of sculptured images. Uh, they turned these things idols, all of them, from a statue of a dog to a statue of a person. It is very difficult for the Jewish people to live in the Roman Empire in the first century, mainly because they were so obsessed with statues. If you read Acts uh, 19, you see Paul walking through the city, and he's, a, he's just looking at the statues everywhere, okay? Um, these things were unclean. They were impure, um, being around them, them being set up in the city of Jerusalem, in all of the area of Judea, made the present their very presence in the entire area of Judea made Judea impure. The presence of these carvings um, in Matthew five chapter eight. I'm sorry, Matthew eight chapter eight verse five through eight. Um, we see Jesus bringing healing to this uh, the house of this Roman centurion. He has a servant who is uh, who is ill, and Jesus wants to heal him. Um, and Jesus offers to this Roman centurion, he says, I'll come to your house, okay? Uh, and the centurion won't let him, okay? Look at verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 8, Matthew, five, uh, Matthew 8, 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, an interesting thing. Jesus offers, I'll go into your house and I'll heal your servant boy. The man looks at Jesus and he says, I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. Why? Why was he unworthy? I mean, he had more honor than Jesus had. A wandering Jewish preacher? A centurion? Who has more honor? Who's higher? Who more deserves it? The thing is, the reason he would say this is because he's talking to a Jewish rabbi. And he knows that it's dishonoring for a Jewish rabbi to enter into his house filled with statues and idols to the gods. And so he looks at Jesus, whom he has come to for healing and for help. And he says, I don't deserve to have you come into my house. You, I can't. I'm below you. Okay? Um, his home was impure um, because of the statues and the idols. And Jesus was Jewish. Even the early Christians... I want you to understand this. Even the early Christians um, reconstituted Israel under King Jesus. Okay. Even the early Christians struggled with the very idea of statues around them. They did not set up statues. They were against it entirely. The Jewish Christians, they found Roman idolatry entirely offensive. They asked the Gentile Christians to avoid Acts 15.20, avoid food polluted by idols. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9, um, Paul frequently refers to idols, and, and he describes this um, the conversion to Christ as, as turning from idols to serving the living and true God. Anytime they're speaking of these statues, they call them idols, and they say, when you come to Christ, you're turning from these things, okay? Um, these are the simple facts, okay? Um, and I know a lot of you are hearing this, and you've been raised to read the Bible as a rule book, 
And so now you're taking it as me, Pastor Tommy, saying, here's the rules. No idols, uh, no statues, no statues in your house, no statues in your yard. The one of the lady with the water pot and it's coming out, the little boy peeing, none of that. Take that all. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, the Bible is not a rule book, okay? It's unhealthy to read the Bible as a rule book. The Bible doesn't exist so that you can flip to certain passages and say, see, it says right here not to do that. So we don't do that. It's not a rule book. Get that out of your mind. Jesus himself said that man doesn't exist for law. The law exists for man. Okay. Um, that means the entire point of the commands is to assist humanity in their movement towards godly flourishing. Um, and so when you see them avoiding statues, and when you see them looking down upon the very presence of statues in their midst, the questions you must ask are, why? Why were the statues prohibited? What was the big deal? Why were they against them? Why were they calling them idols? Couldn't they just make a statue and it not be an idol? Why couldn't they? Uh, and once we look at that question, then we can turn, and instead of making a rule and saying they were against it, so I'm against it. Instead, you look at the reasons why, and then you look at our world and you say, okay, so what does this mean? This principle, this idea, what does it mean for us today? What can I do today in light of this? That's what we're going to do. So as promised, um, as foretold, let's talk about the Imago Dei. Um, we have... From ancient civilizations, from ancient worlds, we have countless stories from the Sumerians, Akkadians, Mesopotamian tribes. Um, we have a lot of remnants of their writings and their carvings and their stories. Um, and one of the things that we have a lot of records of is, is what it took for them to build a temple and how they built their temples. And from reading these things, we can glean a lot um, about the very idea of temples in the ancient world. First off, um, there would be, when they're building it, they, they would have this structure, uh, a ground with a roof. Um, it didn't necessarily need to even have walls. Columns are fine. So a ground and a roof with lighting, usually skylights, torches, things like that. And there would be this garden in the center of it, okay? I know you, you, it's fine to picture the Parthenon, like we've already talked about. Um, and the way they would build this is they would carve all the pieces in these ancient quarries, and they would mark them all, and they would bring all the pieces to the temple sites, um, and the markings would determine where they were to put these things and how they were to put them together. And over the next six days, over six day period, they would construct a temple. Okay. Um, six days. Uh, and over the six days they would furnish the temple. And, um, sometimes it wouldn't be exactly six days, but they would do a measurement of six, six weeks, six months, six years even. And then there would be a six day. If they did that, there would be a six days of furnishing of the temple to where everything that it needed to function would be placed inside of it. Um, and by the way, uh, the scriptures are full of this kind of language about the church as well, because we are the temple of God. Um, there's passages that say, look to the quarry from which you were hewn, the stone from which you like all of this, like we are a temple as well, but let's put that aside and let's keep moving. So on the last day, the sixth day, the priest would enter in um, with a, um, a gathering of dust of the earth mixed with usually spits uh, made into some sort of clay. And they would finish carving. There would be the statue they had carved out of the dust of the earth. And they would carve she would, the, the, the prophet, the priest, um, or the priestess would, would dig their fingers into the eyes to open them up and the ears to open them up. And they would breathe into this image the breath of life. They would, it's called a spiration ceremony. And then they would place it in the garden. Okay. And the whole point of this was very specific. Um, 
by placing the image, this image, this idol in the garden, you could, you would be able to look at this image, this God, this idol, and know what God was like. You would see it. You could look at them, um, and no matter how big or how small this image was, every temple had one of these. And there was a statue in the middle, and you could look at that statue, and you would know now this is what God is like. Um, and there would be different descriptors. You have, um, oh, man, um, Artemis, um, I believe, is the one who had, who had like 30 breasts uh, because she's the goddess of, of life and childbirth and, and feeds the world. The story that they told, all of life came from her, right? Um, that, Paul, uh, that is addressed in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Um, and so um, this ceremony would happen and you would be able to walk into any temple and you'd look at the statue in the middle of it and know what that God was like, you know, the attributes of that God, the character of that God. Now, when you read the book of Genesis, chapter one and chapter two, you see, first off, the construction of the temple in six days. Um, the same way that they would talk about the ancient constructions of, of the secular pagan temples of the world, Mesopotamia, Akkadia, Sumeria. Um, and then you see on day six, you see this, he says uh, in Genesis chapter two, verse seven through eight, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he had put the man that he had formed. So we have a temple, temple building, six days. We have a garden in the middle of it, and you have the idol in the middle of it as well. Instead of a stone or wood idol, we have God forming uh, an idol from the dust of the earth and breathing actual life, a human being in flesh there. So the Bible story starts with what we were here created to do. The story of Genesis is there to tell you, not necessarily how you got here. It's meant to tell you what you're doing here, what your purpose of being alive is. You are the image of God. You are the Imago Dei. You are the statue of God. You were placed here to, just, to tell all of creation what God is like. That my friends, is the centerpiece of the, all the ancient Jewish theology of statues and early Christian theology of statues and how they thought about them. God essentially says, the world will know what I am like because of you. I am present. Uh, they will know that I'm present, my character, my desire for the world. Everywhere that the statue goes, God was there. And the world should be able to look at God's people and see that they are different. And to, so to assist them in their mission of looking like God and being holy, hagios, different from everyone else, which we talked about last week. That's why they dressed funny and wore funny things in their, in their hair and had these beads and tassels and interesting prayers and ate weird foods. They were different on purpose, so the world would know that their God is different from every other God. So in all of this, the world looks at them and they can see what God is like. <coughs> Excuse me. This is why, brothers and sisters, they have the command to make no craven images, to not carve any statues or any idols. Why? Why don't we make a statue of God? Why don't we make a statue of what our God is like? Because that is what you were put here for. We are the images of God. And God made us to show what God is like. When we try to explain God in any other way, other than living out our midst, when we try to make a statue, a carving of God, we commit vocational suicide. Okay? When we create these idols, that's why everyone in the world had idols, but the Israelites did not. Um, if they did this, they would be 
creating something else to take the place of what they were here to do, okay? So when we decide to, to preach about, let's just put it in modern day um, uh, forms of communication. When, when we decide to preach about God instead of live the way God lived, when we decide to sing about the things of God instead of modeling the things of God, we lose our very reason for existence. The absolute best way for us to communicate who God is is by being the presence of God in the world, okay? So there's that. That's, that's where the early Christian theology, the early Jewish theology um, about like shun all statues. That's where this comes from. And we're the image of God. They're not going to carve images of animals. They're not going to carve images of other people. That is not what they were here for. They themselves are a carving. And so this is what they, they were trying to be the best carving they could, okay? Now, what about our statues? What do we do? How do we talk about them? Um, the thing you've to realize, I think, is that, is that statues have a lot of weight. They really do. They have a lot of meaning. They're not casual. Um, they're symbols. They're messages. Uh, during the construction, you may not know the history of the construction of the Capitol building in D.C., but uh, let's go through that real fast. Um, during the construction of the Capitol building in D.C., uh, there was this conflict about the weight and the role uh, that arose from the weight and the role of statues. Uh, there's this historian named Arlen Passa who writes about this. He says that the Capitol building in D.C., which, by the way, was built, was built by slaves. Um, all those white stones there carved and stacked up beneath the dome, the Capitol dome. Every one of those was carved and laid by the hands of enslaved people that D.C. bought from local farmers around the D.C. area um, for $55 a year. And in 1855, Congress decided, after building structure, that they're going to put this massive, magnificent dome on the top of the Capitol building. And so for the top of it, on top of this dome, they wanted a statue, a glorious statue that would sort of become perhaps like the most prominent piece of public art um, in America at the time. Um, and so the Statue of Liberty hadn't been erected yet. This was going to be the statue that would tell the world of their freedoms, okay? So um, this guy, Thomas Crawford's design, uh, he designs the statue and he proposes it and he makes the statue, he draws it and, um, and, he, and he displays it to show everyone, this is what we're going to put on the top. This is going to be the Statue of Freedom. And it was immediately controversial because... Um, there was a government official who was in charge. His name was Jefferson Davis um, of overseeing sort of some of this. Um, he demanded a redesign of the statue because the statue's hat seemed like a, uh, a subtle abolitionist symbol. The, the hat that he was wearing was sort of something that the abolitionists would wear to symbolize like, this is where I stand. Um, and so he stopped the entire building project of the Capitol building, Jefferson Davis, because he didn't like the hat on top of the statue, okay? And so Davis is said to have exploded with rage um, when he sees the hat that the statue was wearing um, and the chains at the feet of the statue, right? And so later, um, you know, this was before Jefferson Davis had left, had left D.C. and become the president of the Confederacy to fight against D.C. Um, eventually, he leaves, and there's another statue that's finalized, and it's actually um, mounted and, and set up and... and the design of it came from uh, the hand of Philip Reed, a, uh, a freed slave. Um, but all of this, this debate about this little statue far away on the top of a building, 
it reveals to us, this happened over and over and over again. These statues have weight. They have meaning. They communicate a message. And if we don't like the message they, they communicate, we tend to rail against them. Um, they tend to um, invoke in us emotions, either strong positive or strong negative emotions. They carry weight. They have a worldview that they speak of. They speak of a future that they would like to see, not just a past. Statues speak of a future. And so I have a few questions that we as Christians need to ask as we interact with the very existence of the statues in our midst. First off, uh, one of the questions that we need to ask is why were these statues made? And what purpose do they serve in the world in which we live? Okay, let's look at this from the outside as Christians. To whose glory were these statues erected? And why were they erected? Why were these particular men, and it's almost always men, why were these particular men chosen as worthy of being venerated? Did they achieve some noble task? Uh, did they achieve something that we would like to emulate today? Did they, did they do something um, that we would like our society to emulate? Um, if we all lived the way that they lived, would there be more flourishing and love and goodness, or would there be less? Be honest about that one. If everyone chose to live in the same way, that the person that these statues represent, what would happen to the world? If everyone decided to emulate the image of this image, let's be honest, that's what these things are. They're meant to be symbols of like people we wanna be like. That's why statues have always been created. Um, if everyone lived like that, what would happen? Uh, let's let's take this from a Christian angle. That's just a base level sort of social angle, a Christian angle. Does this person whose statue stands before us, wherever you're at, do they re do they represent the things of Christ? In other words, would Jesus live that way, the way that they lived? Given the same opportunity, um, would Jesus have done what they did? And you say, no, of course not. No, um, I don't think we can say that of, uh, of, of most people, most statues. Um, we, we might also want to ask ourselves why, and I think this is probably the most important question, why we have erected so many monuments of people like, of, of, let's just be honest, why are there so many monuments of slaveholders and so few of abolitionists? Why have we chosen, why have we chosen to erect those monuments? These people existed. They coexisted at the same time. The abolitionist and the slave owner. Why did we choose one over the other? What does it say about the heart of the nation at the time, of our people? Um, statues have meaning. The moment they were erected, they were, had meaning. The moment they were thought up, there was meaning. Here's a big one. When the kingdom of God comes and is fully revealed and Christ comes walking into your city. Okay, let's do a little um, imagination, imaginative thinking and learning. All right. Um, this will this will be a big thought experiment. Let's just say the kingdom of God comes in your lifetime and, and it's fully revealed and everyone can clearly see full reality. 
and Christ comes walking through your city streets or through your capital spaces, imagine him, imagine Jesus of Nazareth in human form standing before the statues in your city, standing before them, looking up at them and asking, and you're standing with him and he says, hey, who's this? I want you to, I want you to ponder that. Who is this? Try and explain to Jesus why you have a statue of this person. Try and explain it. How does it go? How does it feel? Perhaps you could even make a recommendation on where this statue should sit in his throne room if we're venerating people. Imagine, perhaps, standing before Christ, the originator of the Imago Dei, the one who created you, the image of God, the truth, the, what you were meant, meant to do. Christ, who is also the perfect Imago Dei. Imagine standing before Christ and trying to explain a venerated statue of, of someone who enslaved and owned and therefore, therefore profited from another image of God. Christ creates an image of God who enslaves another image of God. And you have erected a statue. And Jesus is standing there now with you. And you're trying to explain to Jesus why you have made and allowed this statue to continue being in our midst. These are the exercises we probably should be doing as Christians. I imagine that if Jesus in human form right now was walking towards DC, the capital of our nation, that Christians from everywhere would be rushing to hide and cover up every single monument before we got there. And I think the whole time we were hiding them, we would be weeping and repenting and crying out, why, why, why did we do this? I hear pastors and politicians even lately stoking fears about, about people who are about, about people who they think are next going to go destroy the, the statues of Jesus. Okay, let's talk about that. Is that a statue of Jesus? <laughs> Is it really? Um, that's not a statue of Jesus. That is a, an image of God that we, have, that we have dreamed up and made in our own image. And we're very good at this, making God in our own image. There is not a single statue, carved stone statue, that could ever accurately portray Jesus. That is not a statue of Jesus. You know what the statue of Jesus is? The immigrant? You? Uh, the elderly COVID patient? The unborn child? The battered woman? You're fighting the wrong battles. That is not a statue of Jesus. I think one of the main things I want to communicate is that like, we are all wrapped up. So many Christians in America, okay? are all wrapped up in this earthly battle that has nothing to do with us. These are not our images. These are the images of a people who have an earthly kingdom that is not led by a divine king, and they're doing their best to paint a picture of if our king was divine, here's what he would look like. Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, like, and 
And we make statues because we're, we're trying to declare our inner earthly kingdom, our greatness. Like, this is what we want to be. As Christians, none of them are what we want to be. Our sole desire is to be the images of Christ. That's it. And when I hear people trying to coerce others by scaring them into saying, they're going to tear down your statues of Jesus. Those aren't statues of Jesus, first off. Second, not caring about the suffering of the people and stoking fears about these false images of Jesus. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. The reason you make a statue is so that you can, the world can see like, this is what Jesus looks like. But why would you make a statue of Jesus and say, this is what Jesus looks like? The only reason you would want to do that and point elsewhere is because you can't point to yourself and say, this is what Jesus is like. The life that I have lived is what Jesus is like. So instead we make a statue. Our efforts are in the wrong place. The vocation that we have received at the resurrection of Christ was once again a, a reenactment of Genesis 1. Read the story. John chapter 20, verse 20, 21 and 22. Um, Jesus, at the resurrection, gathers his disciples together. And it says this. It says, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Ancient peoples knew exactly what Jesus was doing here. This is a spiration ceremony. Jesus is creating living idols of himself in this world. And it wasn't, not for a second would any of those idols standing around, those, those apostles, not for a second would any of them think, you know what I should do? I should make a statue of Jesus so people know what Jesus looks like. No, no, no. They were the statue of Jesus. Every ancient person who's reading this knows what, what, what the author is saying. God is once again placing his image in this world. To be clear, to be clear, let, let me break some of these assumptions that you've already made, I'm sure. I'm not saying that setting up statues to honor people are wrong. I'm saying that for a Christian, it's absolutely pointless. Christians have no horse in that race, okay? They are piles of stone. That is all they are. They mean nothing to us. These are not our leaders. These are not our, our, our kings. These are not the ones we will emulate ever. The statues that actually matter for Christians are the living statues, the imago days that surround us every single day. Those are the statues that we seek to keep. Those are the ones that we protect and venerate. And I, I notice that oftentimes people tend to care more about these stone images than they do about the actual, actual human images of God. Um, the statues to keep, the statues to protect and to venerate um, is the people around us. Those are the ones that we should be honoring and helping to make beautiful. Okay. Um, I'll put it like this. If you really want to remember someone, if you really think someone's life was amazing and worth remembering, don't build a statue of them. Live like them. Be the statue of them. Okay. But if you find that you can't, because it actually, to live like them would violate the spirit of God within you to live like them. Um, then why would you ever want to have an image of them around? Why would you, why, they don't have an image worth carving. And I know now you're thinking, but then there would be no statues anywhere. And now you understand the argument of the early Christians, why they didn't have statues. They never bothered with them. 
they didn't have a place in the world that they were building. And so what did they do? You can look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Says, he says this, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is going to be the image of God in this world, the image of Christ. When you look at him, you should be able to see Christ. And then Paul says, I'm going to live this way. And as I live this way, you follow me. And by you emulating me, you are emulating Christ because I am emulating Christ. Don't point anywhere else. Live your life so that you can point to yourself and say, follow me, imitate me because I am an imitator of Christ. Okay? These statues have nothing to do with us. That's, that's, that's the main point I want you to take from this. They will come and they will go. When the kingdom of God is fully revealed, when the kingdom of God is established in this world, not a single one of them will be preserved. Um, the reason we get so upset about them is because somehow we find identity in them. That is wrongly placed identity. The only images, the only statues that will stand when the kingdom of God is fully established are the human beings made in the image of God. Those are the things that will remain. And one last thought I have is, is about how we use the language of the Imago Dei. I think we use it wrongly. I mean, we use it with the best of intentions, but I think we're missing its ultimate power in our language. The Imago Dei is not a description, okay? I, there was an article I read this morning um, on, uh, in NBC News, and it said, I'll just read you the title. It says, Ohio lawmaker refuses to wear a mask because he said it dishonors God. And then it says, his quote was, we are all created in the image and likeness of God. That image is seen the most by our face. That's not. Um, I will not wear a mask because he doesn't want to hide the image of God. Now, the way that we use the, the language of the Imago Dei has nothing to do with looks. It has nothing to do even with appearance, okay? The Imago Dei is not a description. It's a vocation. It's a way we are called to live. Sometimes we use the language of the Imago Dei as a way to try to convince people to stop being racist. So we'll look at like someone who's doing a racist act, oppressing somebody, and we'll say, this person is made in the image of God. You, you shouldn't oppress them because they're made in the image of God, okay? And when you do this, you're oppressing the image of God, okay? I get it. I get it. I, I understand what you're doing. We say things like, um, how dare you treat the image of God that way? Okay. Um, while I understand what you're saying, that's not as effective as it could be. Okay. Perhaps the most effective way that we could use this language is not by just talking about the one who's being oppressed, but also by talking about the oppressor. Okay. By looking at the oppressor who is hurting someone else. And instead of saying they're made in the image of God, say, how dare you, you are made in the image of God. You have been placed here with a vocation to live out the attributes and the characters of the divine. And you are telling everyone around you by doing this act and hurting this person, you are communicating to the world that this is what your God is like. Your God is hateful. Your God is vengeful. Your God doesn't care about the needs of the poor, the suffering of children, about the 125,000 people who have already died. You don't care about the children dying in school shootings, about the unborn, about suicides, about sexual assaults, about the lack of access that people have to healthcare. You are telling people through your actions what God is like. And so perhaps the best way to communicate 
the meaning of the image of God to people is not to point at the oppressed and say they're made in the image of God. It's to point at the oppressor and say, you, my brother, are made in the image of God. And you are telling people that God is like this. That is not what God is like and you know it. Okay? That is how it works. The life that you live and the causes that you take up, they tell the world what you think God is like. Okay? They think your God is like you. I think that's the, that's the big takeaway. They think your God is like you. That can be really beautiful. That can be really great. Or that can be absolutely terrifying and heartbreaking. All right? Why don't we take communion? Uh, communion. There are two elements in communion. Um, there is... There is bread. It symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you and poured out for you. There is wine, which symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out uh, for you, uh, for the world, for healing, for salvation. Um, when we look at Jesus, we see ultimately the, the beautiful, perfect picture of what God is like. And what we see is God allowing himself to be broken and poured out for the healing of others. He allowed his own image to be smashed and broken so that people could know. He didn't try to stop them. And as they were doing this, he was forgiving them and saying, they don't understand what they're doing. And then he has called us to follow. And so as Christians, we are to go into the world and allow ourselves to be broken and poured out for the healing and the salvation of the world around us. So my brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would be present amongst us, guide us, form us, fashion us into your image daily. Help us to understand our true vocation. We were not put here to be saved and escape. We were put here to save and bring escape from all of the things that enslave our brothers and sisters in this world. Help us to be your presence. Wherever we go, you are there. Wherever we, uh, we touch and bring healing, you are there. You are touching and you are bringing healing. Just like in Acts 9 when, when Peter said that Jesus heals you. Let us be Christ. Let us be you who brings the healing. Let us, the body of Christ, even though we can't physically be together right now, let us be together in heart and spirit, bring healing to this world. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's do our collect prayer, shall we? God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we, hope, may we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace, bringing your kingdom to earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Grace and peace, my brothers and sisters at Watermark. I'll see you again one day.